Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to another episode of the New Books in German Studies podcast. I'm Darren O'Byrne and today I'm joined by Dr. Mahan Murphy from Kyoto University. Hello and welcome to another episode of the New Books in German Studies podcast. I'm Darren O'Byrne and today I'm joined by Dr. Mahan Murphy from Kyoto University to talk about his latest book, Colonial Captivity During the First World War, Internment and the Fall of the German Empire, 1914 to 1919, published last year with Cambridge University Press. Mahan, you're very welcome to the program. Thank you, Darren. Thank you for having me. I'm very pleased to be here. No problem at all. So, as always, I want to actually start with you if you would, could you maybe tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your career, uh, where you are now and, and how you got there? OK, I'm currently at Kyoto University uh, as a JSPS, which is a Japan Science for Japan Society for Promotion of Science Research Fund. Uh, my postdoctoral fellow here, and I've been here since uh, November 2016. I did my PhD at the LSC, which I uh, did my Viva in February, uh, in November 2014 and graduated in February 2015. My PhD is basically forms the, the research for my PhD forms the output for the book that we're discussing today. Um, after my PhD, I moved back to Ireland to UCD and did some teaching there and then moved into a postdoc with the Humanities Europe Research Area Fund um, on a project called Making War Mapping Europe, Militarised Cultural Encounters from 1792 to 1920 at Trinity College Dublin with John Horne, where I worked on the British military occupation of Jerusalem from 1917 to 1920. And from then I moved on to Japan in 2016, as I said, and I'm currently working on, as part of my postdoc here, looking at Japanese attitudes towards peace and internationalism in the immediate post-First World War period. So that's kind of brought me up to, to now. Okay. So before we get going, one word answer, Trinity College Dublin or University College Dublin? Which is the best? Uh, I well, I did my undergrad in UCD, so I mean Trinity did hire me. I must say, but I, my my heart is in UCD, I suppose. So I'd have to answer in UCD in that case. That'll be right. me too. Uh, I hope we get too much trouble for that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the book is set during the First World War, uh, which is a conflict that most people associate with uh, the trenches on the Western Front. But as you argue throughout, this really was a, a global war. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about these extra-European theatres, or more precisely, where exactly outside Europe, uh, where was the First World War, war fought? Um, well, as you can see from the, my research portfolio, I think I've, the war is certainly a global war. I mean, I was looking at in Trinity, the war as is fought in the Middle East, um, in, in Palestine. But there's all these separate, or well, I would say argue connected um conflicts going on outside Europe that are connected to the main war. Um, for example, in Africa, you have the former German colonies of Togo, Cameroon, German Southwest Africa, German East Africa, which are being taken over by the other colonial powers um, because of the war that breaks out in Europe. It spreads as far as, for example, to the Far East, where Japan uses the First World War, as, of course, Japan is 
part of the uh, Anglo-Japanese alliance, Japan uses that to join the war against Germany and takes over Germany's colonies in China and in the Pacific. So you see these kind of, once the war breaks out in Europe, it becomes a global war by the fact that these are imperial powers fighting a war against each other. You focus primarily on on Germans who were interned mm. by British during the war, practically all of whom had been living prior to their internment in, in German colonies. Where exactly, can you tell us, were these colonies? And if you could, could you also maybe tell us a little bit about why the British are so keen to oust or to get rid of, of German colonial subjects? What exactly is Britain basically hoping to achieve? Uh, well, I think the first initial aspect of this is to military strategic. The British want to stop any communications between German colonies and also, of course, to prevent the German Navy from access to coaling stations. So taking over the ports of these colonies is very important for the British. Uh, Qingdao or Qingdao in, in China is one of the most important German ports in the Far East and the Japanese take this over with British uh, approval. This, of course, is to stop the Ger- German Navy having any coaling stations similar to German Cameroon, German Togo as well. It's, it's to prevent the Germans from communicating with one another across the, the globe. So there's a big wireless uh, station, for example, in Kamina in Togo, which is one of the first things that's taken over by Britain during the war. And this is to stop the German Navy communicating with Berlin. So the first aspect is strategic for the military, but also it stems from a longer term idea of Germans not being fit to run colonies and that use the war's excuse to take out Germany's kind of global power um, and to, to take it over. And as uh, David Killingray describes it, to enact another, a second scramble for Africa uh, that breaks out during the First World War. Can you tell me where where this idea that Germans are not fit to run colonies? I mean, is that around since Germany basically gets its first colonies in the late nineteenth century? Where does it emerge from? I think it gains a lot more traction as the war comes develops. So during the, I mean, at the initial outbreak of the war, the idea is to take over Germany's colonies for the strategic, as I mentioned. But then, as the war develops more, this idea that Germany is not a civilized power on a par with, with the European allies, France or Britain, that this idea that the Germany is not fit to run colonies. And they can use then kind of previous examples are pulled up very quickly. For example, the Herero War in 1904, where the German army is, see, is seen as um, being inhumane towards its treatment of prisoners again, this case where there's a mass genocide of Herero prisoners in, in that conflict in German Southwest Africa. This idea then develops during the war that Germany is a barbarian, it's not suitable to be at the vanguard of a European civilized mission in the colonial sphere. So would you say then it's 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 an ex post facto, an after the fact justification for merely Britain wanting to take the colonies over themselves? Um, you can see it in that kind of hard and fast terms, and to a certain extent that's true. It's probably more true in the case of France, which immediately moves to take, to take over Germans, Germany's uh, West African colonies. Um, in Britain, I think there's still, for example, Southwest Africa is maybe a more complicated case because you have South Africa next to its border, and there is, there is still the idea that, well, it's better to have the Germans maintaining that colony rather than upsetting the balance of forces with vis-a-vis the relationship between whites and blacks in, in South, Southern Africa. Do you know roughly how many Germans were living in, in these uh, colonial possessions? At the outbreak of war, there's a different 
numbers, but it's not a huge amount. There's about 25,000 to 30,000 Germans living across the German overseas empire, basically at the outbreak of war. Added in, then there are a couple of German ships who are stationed in the colonies. Um, there's even the Austro-Hungarian uh, ship, the Kaiserlein Elizabeth, is stationed in Qingdao at the outbreak of war, which has about 500 Austro-Hungarian sailors uh, stationed in the colony when the war breaks out. So you have about 25 to 30,000 people living, working in the colonies, and then a couple more thousand, perhaps, uh, naval officers and, and sailors who are sailing around, of course, as part of the German Navy. Am I right in saying that Germany, at least out of France and Britain and Germany, is probably the country with the least amount of colonies? Yeah, well, Germany's a latecomer to the, the colonial grab, especially in Africa and in, in Asia. Of course, Germany only has a small outpost in Qingdao, which they gained um, in 1897. So Germany as a latecomer didn't really get the best quality colonies, perhaps as well. They never really were a huge economic boon for the German Empire itself. Germany's obviously empire doesn't really provide that much of a financial gain to Germany. It's really more prestige thing. Um, their kind of place in the sun, as they like to argue for. And the prestige of having colonies being an imperial power with overseas colonies is kind of why Germany maintains these colonies, which are essentially losing the German government money every year. Okay, and and given the fact that they have the least amount of colonies or mm. colonial possessions, mm. does that mean that the German forces that are on the ground in these colonies, when the likes of the British and the French arrive, are they able to put up a decent fight against the the would be colonizers on the other side? Sure, I mean the numbers are of course very much stacked against the Germans. Um, in Togo, for example, there's about four hundred uh, of a police force. It's not really an army, and they surrender almost immediately. Uh, likewise, in Samoa, New Guinea, uh, there's very little resistance. Well, in New Guinea, there's one small band of German soldiers who continue kind of a guerrilla-style campaign for a couple of years during the war, but they're pretty much out of the kind of reach of, of the Austrian army in the areas of, of no significance. Cameroon is a bit more, there's more resistance, there's more fighters, the, the organization there is a bit better and they continue fighting until 19, late 1915. Um, of course, the most famous aspect perhaps of the extra-European war in, in during the First World War is the campaign of Paul Wolletter Warbeck, which has kind of been romanticized a lot by uh, military historians over the past couple of years. And still this narrative of him kind of fighting a gentlemanly war in East Africa is still pumped around. Um, but to his credit, Warbeck does hold out until the, after the armistice in Europe. So, I mean, he's the, the German army in East Africa uh, surrenders in on the 25th of November 1918. I made the dates wrong, but it's about two weeks after the armistice in Europe, they actually surrender. So there is a, a long protracted campaign of resistance in Germany, East Africa, uh, which is unlike the rest of the colonial world, for rest of Germany's colonies, where most of them fall quite quickly. Qingdao, for example, falls after two after a two-week siege. Uh, German South West Africa again falls in about 1915 as well. And on on either side, on both say the the German side or the French side or the British side, in these sort of conflagrations in the colonies, are there indigenous soldiers fighting on both sides for the Germans or for the French or for the British? 
Um, yes, it depends on some of the areas. In Southern Africa, they're very reluctant to use indigenous soldiers. Um, but in the Cameroon campaign, this German Askari, uh, which is the kind of German name for their indigenous uh, soldiers, uh, quite a number of them fight and quite a number of them end up surrendering with the German army in, in, into Spanish Guinea, which is southern in the southern part of the colony. Um, the main use of indigenous labor and manpower, though, of course, is the carrier corps, which is one of the perhaps most understudied aspects of the First World War, but also one of the aspects of the war where we see the First World War, really the effects of the war on a global scale. Over one million Africans are displaced during the war and basically rounded up to work in carry packs for these moving armies. Uh, for each British officer, they need about, I think it's seven men to carry their various equipment. And these are marching through terrible conditions. Um, for example, a lot of soldiers are brought from the West African front over to the East African front, moved around, uprooted from their houses. It's, it's quite traumatic for a lot of these people who are not used to being essentially press ganged into serving armies. But the British also have then the King's African Rifles. They have a lot of Indian soldiers. There's a huge international army fighting in Africa, basically, at this time. You also talk a lot about what you call a racial role reversal for mm. Germans in the colonies and how this often began with their arrest, so even before they were actually interned. Can you say a little bit about this racial role reversal and how the experiences of Germans immediately prior to internment, um, how, these experience help, um, how these experiences helped bring about this racial role reversal? Yes, I think, well, the role reversal was felt quite instantly, I think, by Germans. Um, I, I start my book off with a, an incident of a German planter in New Guinea who, when the war breaks out, one of his uh, farmhands comes up to him and tells him that, well, now that we're fighting this war, is it okay for us to kill white men? And this is seen as a very kind of strong impact on the colonial uh, social balance, social structures of the time. A lot of the Germans in their memoirs feel this very keenly, either for it's utilized for propaganda purposes or it's their own personal experience. This idea that Germany has, has now been kind of shamed through its defeat and through the use of uh, deportations and imprisonment of Germans in the colonies. This has really shamed them in front of the quote unquote native eyes, therefore putting Germans who are at, before the war at the top of this kind of colonial social ladder pushing them down to the bottom and having dire consequences then for European control of colonies in general. It's not just the Germans who are thinking about this. There's a lot of people in Britain discussing this idea. Well, if we treat the Germans too harshly in front of indigenous um, subjects, how will we regain control of these colonies once they've seen that? And especially, for example, using soldiers uh, African soldiers on the European fronts when they come back, how will they going kind to of be reintegrated back into colonial structures when they themselves have fought on the first uh, in European battlefields? This debate is constantly going through the war and the kind of the imperial context of the war. How do we recontrol, regain control of our colonies after the war is over? After having shown kind of that this, there is not a common European civilizing mission, Europeans are fighting each other and they're fighting each other not only in Europe but also in these colonial contexts. So this idea of a, a common European civilizing mission in mm -hmm. inverted commas, is that something that most sort of 
Europeans in the colonies uh, subscribed to before the First World War? I think so. And you see, by the way, that the colonial societies in these areas are not really broken down by nationalism so much before the war. You see Germans and French and British living together in, in the colonies, crossing borders, um, British East Africa and German East Africa quite porous with people living in, in either side and having close relationships with each other. Once the war breaks out, then these kind of break down into their own, into their own national uh, boundaries. But before the war, there is definitely a sense of a common European civilizing mission, um, especially having so many various sects of uh, missionaries, uh, either Catholic or Protestant missionaries, out in, in these areas with very multinational makeup of their uh, preachers and sisters and brothers. Let me just take um, sort of a, a hypothetical question. Um, maybe yeah. there is some basis in it. Are there, say, Germans living in British colonies or vice versa? Um, oh, very much so. Yeah. Um, one of the first Germans interned are those living in India. Uh, so Germans living in British colonies before the war are also interned and deported in some cases. Um, and they get mixed into camps then with the other Germans taken from the Germany's own colonies, but there is a quite broad range of different people living across Africa, across Asia in each other's colonies. So there's lots of Germans living in South Africa, for example. Of course, it would have been some of them, for example, would have been born in South Africa to German parents who had moved over in the late in the late 19th century, likewise in India. So there is quite a mixed community living in these colonies. They're not just German East Africa is Germans only. It's also a lot of British. Um, it's very difficult. For example, Germans are not too keen to to move to these colonies. Germany's colonies are not very attractive. There is a, a drive um, in the early 1900s to get Germans to move to these colonies, um, or at least if they can't get Germans, to get other these Germanic speakers, such as Swiss or even as far as Swedes as well, to kind of go in and fill in, fill in these gaps that have been basically taken over by English and, and French. So if the aims early on for internment are, mm. at least early on, like I said, strategic, mm. yes. why then intern the Germans in India when they already have control of the communications there and they're already in control there? Um, I think this goes towards an empire-wide policy of interning, civilian internment of Germans, especially at the beginning of war, of course, this, these, a lot of these Germans who would have been from the ages of 18 to 45 would have been labelled as reservists. So they are technically military prisoners. So they would have to be interned according to British policy. As the war breaks out, especially in the wake of the sinking of the Lusitania, British policies towards internment or deportation become a lot more severe and you see much more roundups of not only um, military age men, but also uh, older men and women and children as well. So once the decision for these various reasons uh, mm. has been taken to intern Germans in the colonies, were they all interned immediately? Were different people subjected to different practices? Was any Were any people sent back to Germany, for example? What way does it, broadly speaking, play out? Yeah, I think in the initial phases, especially, for example, on West Africa, Togo, Cameroon, the policy is mainly repatriation or deportation, especially of women and children. So a lot of women, for example, from Cameroon are initially taken to the Gold Coast and then taken back to Britain and from Britain sent back to Germany. 
a lot of uh, missionaries as well, likewise, would have suffered the same fate where they're being taken through the Gold Coast up to Britain and then back to Germany. The Basel mission, which is essentially a Swiss mission, but most of its um, clergy, etc., are made up of German nationals, suffered a lot this way, where most of their, their people are taken out and then sent back to Germany. For military men, of course, this is not an issue, this is not an option, and they're either initially interned in West Africa or then brought to Britain for internment. Those captured by the French are mainly sent for internment in Benin. Dahomey in Benin is the main camp where French, French, France keeps most of its uh, uh, German prisoners. Britain prefers to, after initial period of internment within. West Africa likes to bring their prisoners back to Britain where they're kept in places such as the Isle of Man. With all that in mind, mm. given that some are sent back, some are kept there, do we know roughly how many are interned in total during the war? It's tricky to get a number of figures because these camps are quite fluid. Uh, they are either temporary places or they keep building up. For example, at Bednagar Camp in India, which initially is designed to house Germans who were living in India then also becomes a depot for Germans from the East African campaign. And you see this huge influx of prisoners coming through, as, of course, I mentioned at the beginning, the East African campaign is ongoing until the war's end. So there's a, a constant influx of prisoners coming from East Africa into at Medlegar. The camp is expanded, I think, three times during its life, life, lifespan during the First World War into separate barracks. So it's very, very difficult to keep a track of who's coming in and out of these camps and what theatres they have been taken from. Likewise, the camps in Egypt, which also take a lot of German prisoners from the German colonies, but also from British colonies and also from the Palestine front. So the, it's I found it very tricky during the research to actually get a number of exactly how many of these 25,000 Germans end up in a camp or end up being sent straight back to Germany. But what we do know is that most of them end up at least in one of these two situations. Very few are allowed to remain at, at free in, in the colonies themselves. Yeah, I'd say it's difficult, all right. Mm. Um, so you've touched on this briefly, but I want to sort of put it in a different way. You're, sure. ba- you're basically talking about a, an integrated global camp network. That's what you, you, you call it in the book. Yeah. And you also mentioned about how many of the countries in which people, Germans, of course, had lived before their internment, they weren't actually interned in those countries and they were actually sent off to other camps across the world. And, and, and in some instances, if I remember correctly, they all seem, they seem to be, in, in, I suppose, on the road for, for, for quite a bit of the war. Is that correct? Yeah, there's a constant movement as kind of camps decide, Britain decides its honest policies during the war. The, the aim is centralization of the camp system. And of course, as the war develops, this policy develops in line with it. Um, the first kind of strategy is to, after initial housing within the German colonies itself, is to get Germans out of their colonies. The one idea, of course, is to prevent any idea of guerrilla warfare or fracture within the colony. For example, this is basically a reenactment of what Britain did during the Boer War. 
but also then there's as the policy comes towards unlike the Boer War where the idea was that after the war these Boers could be reintegrated back into the colony there was to be no reintegration after the war ended in the First World War. Germans were supposed to be sent out of the colonies. These colonies would then be taken over by, by Britain or France. Um, and these policies, of course, did develop during the war themselves as well, eventually leading to the, the mandate system after the war. But the idea then initially was to just basically get the Germans out of these colonies to prevent any stakes to claims on property and land as well. And as the war develops, then this idea of where do we end up sending them? So you see these kind of more what we would picture as kind of when we picture a camp in that Medinaga, for example, with barbed wire and huts and developing into a proper camp structure and becoming kind of a, a place where we can send Germans from Africa to at Medinaga. Eventually, the idea is to, before the war ends, of war ends to prevent this idea, but the idea is that all Germans from outside the European theaters will be sent to Australia for internment. And you see this with Hong Kong, where 400 Germans are sent from camps that had been in Hong Kong at the beginning of the war down to Australia in uh, August 1918. And this was going to be an empire-wide policy, but the war, of course, finishes in November, so this is cut short. You mentioned the Boer War there. Are the British, with regards to their policy of internment, are they very much learning lessons from that conflict? I think so. I mean, it's it's a constant development. Britain has been constantly developing a camp structure. There's a very good book by Aidan Force just came out discussing Britain's uh, the evolution of camps within the empire from the 1870s up to the Boer War. And of course, the Boer War is the example that people immediately think of. Um, indeed, the very physical things, some of the camps are actually reused. Camps in Bombay, for example, which had been used to house Boer prisoners are immediately recycled for the prisoners of during the First World War. So there is a lot of kind of shared memory of how to deal with uh, civilians and interned civilians and a lot of lessons learned where they are, are uncomfortable with the fact of keeping women and children in these cramped conditions. The, the Boer War had been a PR disaster for the empire in terms of how they treated uh, female and, and children internees. And this was something they were very active to not repeat during the First World War. Hence, one of the key goals was to, rather than intern women and children, was to deport them back to Germany. So we've already mentioned the what the conditions were like for Germans mm. who had been just arrested. Can you maybe say a little bit about their way to the internment camps? Uh, what was this experience like? How did they get there and so on? Sure. I mean, so women, it's, it tends to be you're brought to a ship and deported. For example, in Cameroon, uh, the what used to be the German capital of Dubala in Cameroon is taken over by the British forces and Germans living there are giving, they're initially gathered at the at the city hospital to also essentially register their names um, as the city is now under occupation. Once they're gathered in the hospital square, they're all ordered to gather their possessions within 45 minutes and report back to the hospital. And from there, they're taken to the dock and put on ships. And this is seen as a very traumatic moment for these prisoners Um who had been, you know, as I mentioned, top of kind of German colonial society, now having to carry their own possessions. Uh, this is something, you know, that obviously colonial Europeans did not do beforehand. They would have carriers, but during this case, they're not allowed to have carriers. Um, even one woman complains about having to carry her own child in front of the kind of eyes of the natives. This is, you know, again, seen as very humiliating. And they're put on ships, um, given second-class berths on the ships and sent back to Britain. 
in other terms, then for men, it's yeah, brought to camps. It's interesting. In Egypt, for example, the camps are quite makeshift. So it's one way you're put to work developing the camp as it goes along. Initially, they, they're housed in tents. These tents become then developed into more kind of major barracks. But there is an interest in kind of people meeting other Germans from other colonies and seeing kind of the different um, situations that each prisoner has kind of been through is quite quite interesting. It's kind of mix of, for example, the Indians who'd been in India before the war, all of a sudden they're put into camps with these Germans from East Africa who are very much poorer and not the same kind of social status as these as these Indians, British uh, German Indians who'd, be, who'd been living in India. Are there any treks from the one side of Africa to the other? There are quite a bit, yeah. Uh, in East Africa, you see women complaining about having been marched through the Congo, for example, to get to West Africa. I'm not quite sure how true or how, how true these treks are. I've only kind of come across a couple of references to them, but they, if they are true, they seem very harsh, looking at how British, German women are taken from East Africa captured by Belgians and from the Belgian side then brought through the Belgian Congo to West Africa to be shipped back to, to Germany. And they call these forced marches. There's not a lot of reference to them in literature. I don't think the British were, were complicit in doing the forced marches, but certainly the Belgian government may have been. And the indigenous populations who were, I suppose, ostensibly subjects of the German colonialists, um, after the British arrive, after the French arrive, what are conditions like for them? How are they treated? Because I, I presume they're not transported to the camps, but rather stay in the country of, of, of where, where they're from. It depends. I mean, you have, you know, a lot of African soldiers who are fighting with the German army and who've been fighting with them for quite a long time. Even before the war, they've been part of the kind of German colonial structure. Um, perhaps the most famous being Karl Atangana, who was a Cameroonian uh, leader of the Betty polity Um and he's very loyal to the German army. He fights with them. They retreat through southern Cameroon into Spanish Guinea. Atangana follows the German European officers. And from Spanish Guinea, they're sent to Spain. And Atangana himself is also ends up going to Spain with the German army. And it's interesting to see his career then after the war. After, in 1919, Atangana, uh, he puts pressure on... King Alfonso in Spain to to petition for Germany's retention of the colonies at Versailles. Of course, Alfonso doesn't have much of a, a voice at, at Versailles, but it's interesting to see Atangana petitioning for German retention of the colonies. Of course, his position within the German colonial society was quite good. This gets turned on its head, of course, if France or Britain takes over. But Atangana then, once France takes over the Cameroonian mandate, at Carl Atangana becomes Charles Atangana, and he seems a very loyal worker for the French and becomes quite high up in French society. So he's able to kind of transition these identities when needs be. And um, what about the the mass of the indigenous populations who are there? Are they just sort of expected to transfer their allegiance now to their new colonial masters? Is that, is that <clears throat> the ex- expectation? There's expectation, but it doesn't quite work out in reality. Um, again, these using the example of the Cameroonian troops who are stationed in Fernando Po for a couple of months, which is the uh, island off Spanish Guinea, which is where the, the Spanish, Spanish initially keep them. There's about 3,000 indigenous troops who have fought with the German army. And the British offered them an amnesty to come back and take up positions in the 
Cameroonian police force, but they refuse. <coughs> Excuse me. But they refuse on grounds that, well, they they're happy with the German army. They're getting what they want, and if they can, they're basically planning to take over the colony again. If Germany runs it, they can keep their position. So it's not as easy as capturing an African soldier, putting a flag on him, and turning around the other way and sending point and shoot at the at the, your former friends. These loyalties of soldiers are very complicated. Um, not just, of course, their their position within. Colonial society very much is effective uh, on who's in charge of that society. So if you are an African soldier fighting for the Germans, you kind of want the Germans to win because post-war that's going to be a better position for you. And there is fear on the German on the British side of, for example, releasing German African prisoners in East Africa. How to you know letting them back into the local population is seen as very delicate. How to deal with them? Of course, make sure that they're paid well. And hope that they don't revolt against you once you've set them free. I want to move on to the prisoners' experiences of internment now. What were the conditions like for Germans now living in, in British internment camps? Um, of course, we deal with such a large area. They, they vary, of course, with geographical region. But there's a, as the war developed, there's a general push by the British to have a kind of uniform camp idea, which of course doesn't always play out in reality, but the, the ideology of it is that these camps should all be kind of uniform and should fit to a standard that will conform to what is happening in the UK. Uh, so this is a gradual process, but essentially camp life is quite similar to what we see in other parts of Europe Um apart from, of course, from climate and food. One big problem with the council, one thing the German government uses a lot in its campaign to vilify the British government as part of its propaganda, is this idea of turning Europeans in sub-Saharan conditions is very detrimental to health. The uh, Institute for Tropenkrankenheit and the Institute for Tropical Diseases in Hamburg, for example, does a big report on the effects of internment or long-term stays outside in these kind of conditions for women and children, where they come to the conclusion that, of course, this living in for Europeans living in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, can stunt children's growth. It will affect menstrual cycles of women. It's very, of course, detrimental, as they say, to, to women's health. This is also believed in Britain and is seen as something that they want to, to remedy. They do not want to keep these people in these camps. I think this plays into the experience of the Boer War and how the Boer War was such a terrible um, disaster for Britain in terms of its propaganda. So the idea that of bringing women back to more European conditions is very important, hence deportation to Germany or internment in, in the UK or Australia or even South Africa, which are seen, of course, as kind of white settler colonies. Therefore, they're more conducive to European life. Camps themselves, then, I think we kind of, when we picture a camp, we picture a barbed wire enclosure, which is pretty much what we have here, but more with tents rather than actual barracks. Barracks developed during the war. At Mednagar is probably our most clear case of what a camp in extra-European theatre looks like. It's broken into three different sections, A, B and C. C is a civilian internment camp, which is mainly made up of those Germans who'd been living in India before the war. They're living in essentially bungalows. Um, it's quite pleasant when we, if we have our kind of image of camps. We, we don't really think of this idea of people living in bungalows, and they're quite free to they have a curfew, which they obey themselves. B camp then is held for 
uh, soldiers. It's more of a barracks style. At Mendiger used to be British barracks. It was also a plague um, centre for concentration of Indians during during the, the plague in the, in the late 18, 1870s. So it's got the, kind of a similar barrack structure and a campus for officers, which is more similar to C camp in terms of its, its liberalist towards uh, prisoner treatment. Within these camps, then you see class divides between, as I mentioned, those who'd been living in India before the war and those who come from Germany, East Africa, for example. Those living in India had some network within India and they're getting relief supplies from friends, acquaintances in the continent itself. For those who come from East Africa, don't really have these uh, networks and also their money is worthless. The money they'd earned from German East African right marks are not worth the paper they're printed on anymore, so they don't really have any chance to buy extra supplies apart from the rations they're given. The rations are essentially, yeah, European style. The Red Cross inspects the camps and writes up about what the food is getting, and they're definitely not being deprived in any way. There is some problems, for example, with the type of food people are given, and then this applies again to what people their status as Europeans in the colonies applied to. They will not eat African or Indian foods. They want to have European-style beef and potatoes, etc. Work is essentially voluntary, although prisoners do not like the idea of having to perform coolie labour. Um, in most of the camps in the extra-European world, what we see also is that these prisoners are allowed to have servants, which of course we think of prison camps in the 20th century context, the idea that prisoners can bring employ their own servants is quite ludicrous. Most of these are local. Um, for example, well, in Japan, for example, the Germans bring some of their servants from China with them and they work in the camps there. In India, likewise, these Germans have some local servants or poorer soldiers who don't have enough money can also sometimes work to servants. There's some evidence of that as well. What about violence? Um, was violence uh, ever present in the camps? Well, I mean, and, and what I'm talking about here is um, violence meted out by camp guards, say, against prisoners. Is that a factor? Yes, I mean, it's not as, as systemic, but there is um, certainly isolated incidents of violence. Um, guards overacting their station, getting annoyed with prisoners and, you know, in some cases beating them. Um the prime example, I think, is the after initial initial capture, I think you see these kind of more violent incidents more common than as the, as the camps develop and, and kind of solidify. Uh, the prime example, I think, would be in New Guinea in Rabaul, where on the capture of New Guinea by the Australian forces, seven Germans are publicly flogged, recaptured, arrested, taken to the jailhouse and then publicly flogged by the Australian authorities for what they were seen as their part in the beating of a British uh, citizen before the capture who was accused of being a British spy. And this is a very public form of violence, a very public form of punishment. And it's, the use of flogging is something that's also only used in reserve for indigenous, uh, indigenous uh, prisoners or, or criminals. So this is seen as a very big propaganda uh, outrage for Germany. This, there's a big write-up in the in German papers talking about this rebel, rebel flogging and how it's kind of shamed Britain in terms of its idea of Britain being a European civilizing power. Within the camps themselves, though, we don't see the kind of systemic violence that we do in other parts of the First World War, for example, and the as the camps develop on the Western Front. But there are incidents of Germans being flogged, having to forced to do labor, 
But the violence doesn't quite compare to, I think, our image of 20th century camp violence overall, certainly not. Is there a difference between, and I'm talking about violence here, but is there a difference between the type of violence that, say, well, white Germans are subjected to and indeed the violence that, say, indigenous soldiers from the colonies or or indigenous prisoners from the colonies are subjected to? Is it more frequent, for example? Yes, I mean, I think in terms of indigenous soldiers and indigenous laborers, for example, in New Guinea, um, it's still... uh, legal to flog prisoners, uh, indigenous prisoners or indigenous farmhands, even for if you caught them misbehaving, whereas, of course, it's illegal to flog Europeans. That's still that barrier between who can be subjected to what types of violence is very important. And that is essentially upheld in the camp system. And this is why the Rabaul incident, I think, is cause of such a scandal, because this is one incident where that line between colonial violence, quote unquote, being subjected to Europeans is crossed. The British government in London, they're very keen to prevent um, these excesses, or at least to prevent the stories about them from emerging. You mentioned um, the public flogging in New Guinea. Um, Can you maybe say why the British are so keen to prevent it? uh, And what measures do they actually take to stop the stories from emerging, or indeed even to stop the violence from happening? Well, there are two, two key factors, I think. The main one is is international, well, not the main one, the two main factors, I'd say. The one is the international audience, especially up until USA's entry to the war in July 1917. This maintenance of Britain's right to fight Germany in the war and using, you know, Germany's image of Germany as a brutal barbarian due to its invasion of Belgium and the quote-unquote rape of Belgium that happens there, the violence against women and civilians in Belgium is very widely reported in Britain and is one of the defining acts of the war itself that brings Britain, the propaganda campaign in Britain to get Britain to fight the war is centred on this idea of the rape of Belgium. So to have Britain then, stories of Britain treating its soldiers, its captives inhumanely does not fly. Britain has to be seen as this kind of civilized power who will treat its defeated foes gracefully. And this is very much important for propaganda within the empire and also, of course, without in terms of its American audience and other neutral countries, but especially America until 1917. The other key factor is the fear of reprisal. So these stories, and often the stories coming from the internment in the colonial uh, areas of the war, are falsified or kind of they're fantastical in some ways. They're, they're, the violence is exaggerated and it plays onto this kind of idea of what a contemporary European would have thought about when they think of colonial violence. And these get reported to the German government and get reported in Germany. And there's a very real threat then of British prisoners held in Germany been uh, suffering reprisal punishments in terms of punishments concurrent to what's happening, to what at least what the German government thinks was happening in Africa. And there are threats, for example, after Rabaul, Germany does threaten reprisal action against British prisoners in Germany. So this is one of the key factors, I think, is the idea that, well, you need to maintain the image of good treatment is important for the neutral and also your own uh, domestic audience and also then the fear of what's going to happen to British prisoners held in Germany. And what about this potential war crimes trial that they were planning? Yes, I mean, there, there is some cases where the British 
do discuss potential war crimes trials after the war. And this is one factor, of course, of why Britain needs to maintain its own kind of clean image of how it treated its defeated uh, foes um, to piece together then its, its dossier against Germany for the potential post-war crime tri- war, 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 war crime trials. Nothing really comes of it in the end. The war crime trials are a bit of a farce. But there is a dossier put together on some Germans in South West Africa, for example, that could be used in this potential uh, post-war trial. You've touched on this already, but I just want to want to come back to it for a small bit. Can you maybe talk a little bit more about how camp experience often varied or differed according to one's social class, uh, whether or not one was a, a man or a woman, um, and sometimes even according to, to race. How, mm. were, how were these different groups treated in the camps? Well, race is the key factor, and unfortunately there's very little documentary evidence of what's happening in the camps for German Askari soldiers. Um, there are a few camps in East Africa and in Cameroon, but there's very little documentary evidence of them to find out what exactly is happening within these camps. So that's kind of a, a big black hole in the research, and unfortunately I don't see how we can fill that. It's quite difficult. In other cases, then you're looking at, well, traditional class structures do kind of come into play in terms of how people deal with each other. Uh, one case, for example, is single men living in camps end up getting pulling together their rations together to buy other things, putting their allowances together to buy books and things like this, for example. So there is kind of a camp community develops that's similar to what Matthew Stibbard defines in his uh, book on Rulebun Camp, this idea of a kind of imagined, to use Benedict Anderson's uh, phrase, imagined community of the camp, is very much comes into play as well in these extra-European theatres. What's difficult is some places, for example, where you have the women's camp in Belgaum in India and the men's camp in at Mednagar. You see these women petitioning to have their husbands moved to the camps to to the topic. They become family camps to live with them. And the camp there in Belgaum has two separate structures. One is kind of a big hall, and the rest are these kind of small bungalows. And obviously, you want to be living in the bungalow with your family you've got a more private space but if you're living in the big hall area then you're kind of you're seeing you're living as kind of in a what we think think of a traditional kind of barrack structure but with your family which of course is maybe quite difficult for people in in their own private space so camp experience does vary very much um depending on who you were and where your social background is from as I said, if you're a poor prisoner, for example, you might end up working as a, as a servant for the more upper class prisoners. And the officer corps, of course, tends to be treated much better. They've, their rations are bigger. They have more free time. This is one thing is that officers are usually allowed out of the camps. Um, they have a curfew, this idea that they'll you know, obey the gentlemanly conduct of war and will come back to the camp, whereas soldiers are not as trusted as much. Are there many single women in the camps or are they all sent back to Germany? Uh, looking at the numbers and lists from the camps, there's very few single women, very few single women in the colonies themselves anyway. Um, most of the women out there are missionaries or families, daughters of missionaries. There were initially, for example, and this is another part of where these deportations and camps comes into the kind of social structure of empire and in some ways kind of uh, purifying the, the social structure, for example, it, 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 uh, for want of a better word, 
a lot of prostitutes, for example, are initially deported back to Germany from India and from other places as seen as, of course, it's a good excuse to, to get rid of these kind of undesirables from the, from the colony using their, their German background. There are very few, other than that, then there are very few single women, mainly families. I found your discussion of how internment almost compelled a, a new and, and different sense of German national identity. I, I found that to be incredibly fascinating. Can you maybe tell us about how Germans thought of themselves before the war and how this was affected by their experiences of internment? Well, I think the war, of course, as I mentioned before the war, there is much more sense of not being German within an, in the colonial context, but being European. And the war forces not just the Germans, but the British and French as well to, to reconsider their status as Europeans in Africa or in Asia, but become more defined by their national traits. And so they become more German in Africa. So the war, of course, forces a reappraisal of that. And, and within the camps then themselves, they, you know, they take part in these patriotic displays of singing Wacht on the Rhine and these kind of things in, in the camp itself, uh, theatre performances of German plays, which are interspersed with some other British performances as well, but it's mainly kind of, again, the camp is a place to to reaffirm your Germanness and public displays of pride, celebrating Kaiser Wilhelm's birthday, for example, becomes a very big part of the kind of annual camp life where... It's unusual in the camps, beer, for example, is allowed to be drank. So people do celebrate Kaiser's birthday with beer and traditional German food and greeting each other. So you see the formation of this imagined camp community. You also see the formation then within an imagined German community within the camp as well, where they become more German and less European. Are Germans interned only with Germans? Uh, no, with Austro-Hungarians as well, but generally they're separated from, for example, Turkish prisoners. Um, in Egypt, for example, the camps in Egypt are divided between Germans and, and Turkish in Malta also. They're generally quite close to each other, but they're usually separated. But you see kind of, again, Europeans being interned together. What becomes problematic then, of course, is when you have those Austro-Hungarians who, during the course of the war, switch nationality, become Czech or Italian, then you have problems with the camp of stability in camp life and fights do break out, for example, um, against Germans fighting against Austro-Hungarians who they see as not being loyal to the central powers uh, cause. Quite a few Austro-Hungarians are sent back from Japan early as they're seen as just become French nationals or to become Italian nationals. So... We know that Germany both loses the war and officially loses its colonies after it. Um, what actually happens to the people who had spent the war in the camps? I presume that they weren't able to head back to the colonies. No, I mean, they're all... Anyone who's left in the camp at the uh, armistice is eventually sent back to Germany. It takes a long time. Um, Albert Achilles, who's... Memoirs I use in the book, he's interned in India. He gets back to Germany in late 1919 after being quarantined. Of course, the Spanish flu uh, disrupts these repatriations as well as the peace negotiations. So there is quite a lot of problematic. The journey back is quite uh, long and torturous for most of these people. Once back in Germany, then they don't have colonies anymore. Their, their plantations have been taken over by the British or by the French, uh, who are very much keen not to allow them back. So these people become displaced and sent back to Germany. What's interesting then is in the 1920s, Britain, for example, tries to sell off these plots of German plantations that they have in Cameroon, 
1922, they put up a public auction for these German allotments. And of course, the, the sale is only for British citizens only. They don't allow Germans to bid on any of these plantations. Interestingly, no one really is interested in buying these places. So again, in 1924, the British government tries to sell off these plantations, but this time allows German bidders. And you see a lot of the Germans who previously owned the colonies then bidding for the, previously owned the plantations, bidding for these places and actually moving back. So there is a strange, by the late 20s, a lot of Germans have either moved back to other parts of Africa or even back to their kind of within the mandate if they're allowed to move in. This is not the case in French Cameroon, for example, where the French would not allow Germans to come back. So during internment, they have re-found a sense of German national identity. Many of those who then head back to Germany find a country that, I won't say it's hostile, but it maybe wasn't the country that they imagined whilst they were in internment. I'm wondering, during your research, have you ever come across anything that might help us understand how this reawakened sense of German national identity was affected after arriving back in Germany? Yes, I think it's it's a quite traumatic effect for them um, coming back. So as they come back 1919, 1920, sometimes even they come back to Germany that's not the Germany they had imagined. They very much idea of their Germany as the imperial Germany. And they arrive then in the, in Weimar in the, in the middle of, of chaos. They find it very hard to adjust or, or readjust to, to life back in Germany. Uh, one writer notes that, you know, he's disgusted by this modern system of Germany. The idea of suffrage for women disgusts him. The idea that, you know, a democratic Germany is not something he wants to live in. And he sees the true Germany as being actually in East Africa, where they have this kind of planter, colonial frontier ideology kind of carving out a new proper Germany that's kind of to replace this old, you know, decadent, horrible communist Germany that's on the horizon. So you see a very kind of interesting meeting of these Germanies once these colonies come back to this Germany that they, they very much find very alien to the one they'd left. Yeah, I find this absolutely fascinating in the mm. sense that this is a theme that we, we, we come across many times as historians. The the further one is away from the metropole, almost the stronger the sense of Germanness that they have. Um, this certainly seems to be the case with the people that, you, that you've studied. So we're approaching just an hour nearly almost, and I've already taken up enough of your time. But before I let you go, when people hear the word uh, concentration camp or internment camp I think many of them almost instinctively think about the the second world war do you think that the general concentration camp system that emerged during the first be it in the colonies or on the on, on, on in mainland Europe in any way provided a blueprint for those that emerged during the second world war um, yeah, we have to be kind of careful when discussing these things and thinking about is there kind of a linear progression? Of course, there's very different changes. A lot of writers have talked about the idea that Germany's concentration camps develop in Southwest Africa during the Herero genocide, which I don't think fall true. But the First World War definitely is a pivotal change in how camps are used and how they're kind of used to, to deal with populations. The First World War itself, you see especially within Europe, the camps becoming much more violent in terms of how they're 
prisoners are being treated and labor being used. So the idea that kind of breaking this taboo on using prisoners as force, uh, prisoners as war as forced labor is, is broken very much in Germany during the First World War. Whether we can see a linear trans, transgression then from the First World War to the Second, in terms of our imaginable camp structure is, I think, yes. But in terms of how the kind of use of a camp, I mean, these camps are no way used for extermination. That's never the, the end goal of these camps. They're used to either exploit labor or to use us to keep prisoners prisoners of war out of the way and prevent them from going back to battlefields. So in that sense, to look for the kind of origin of the concentration camps, yes, there's a, a pivotal change in how prisoners are used during the First World War, but definitely the camp, it's... Leitmotiv is not extermination at this stage at all, by any means. What are you working on now at the moment? I'm looking now at Japan, um, looking at Japan's attitude towards peace during the Taisho period. I'm trying to see how the First World War changes, of course, international attitudes towards peace and the maintenance of world peace and how Japan fits into this. Japan's own experience of the war is very important for its expansion of its empire within East Asia, but also then brings Japan into, formally Japan becomes a proper great power through its uh, position on the League of Nations and in the Paris Peace Conference. And I'm curious to see how Japan deals then with this idea that it's a new pacifist ideology that emanating from a resurgent America and a broken Europe. Well, best of luck with that. The book is called Colonial Captivity During the First World War, Internment and the Fall of the German Empire, 1914 to 1919. It's available on Amazon, I think, and Cambridge University Press. right? Yes, yeah. I'd go for Cambridge Press. Cambridge University Press. Um, And really, I, I can't recommend this book highly enough for anybody who's interested in the truly global aspects of the First World War, but also particularly anybody who's interested in the nature of internment during that war. Dr. Mahan Murphy, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you. Pleasure.